Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Sering Lama. Sering is the author of We Measure the Earth with Our Bodies, which was a finalist for the 2023 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize and the 2023 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. On this episode, Sering talks about how her debut novel began and how she deals with doubt. Sering starts our conversation with a reading from We Measure the Earth with Our Bodies. So uh, this is from page 43, chapter 5. Gokhar Nepal, Semosemakar, Tibetan refugee settlement, fall 1962. So the characters have come into exile and they've been in the refugee settlement for about 10 years at this point. And this is from the perspective of Lamo, who is one of the four main characters of the novel. Somehow, I have been named the best and fastest rope weaver in the camp. My handiwork holds together all kinds of buildings here, from the new outhouses to the administrative hut, which also serves as our clinic. Today I'm tasked with making ropes for the school, where Tanky will soon study. Most people like to work together, but I prefer to weave alone at the edge of the camp, with my legs dangling over the river. Left in peace, I enter a kind of lovely trance and hardly notice the effort of weaving, needing only to give a few short glances at my fingers to put a new blade of grass in, or to tighten a stubborn knot. Two crows have appeared, circling above my head, speaking to each other. What, I wonder, do they say? How do I appear to them? Alone on the small patch of arid hilltop, a girl who's thin and dirty, with hair so matted it could break a comb. And look at my dress, fraying at the hems and pocked with holes. But it's my solitary nature that singles me out. Even the people here worry about me. I can almost hear them say, there's that girl again, staring into the valley, body tight as a rock, talking to herself. They tell Ashan Mingmar to watch me, to have me checked out by someone, though they can never say who is able to help me in this strange land. My uncle, meanwhile, suggests I go somewhere farther out so people will not be troubled by the sight of a young girl sitting alone. But I have something they don't know about, a secret letter. With each breath I take, the paper moves with my chest like a hard and brittle shell. Months have passed since Shumo's letter fell into my hands. And though it's not a lie to say that camp life has been full of distractions, the longer I stay silent, the more the letter weighs on me. Still, it is surprisingly easy to continue saying nothing, doing nothing with it. Not destroying the thing, not handing it over to my uncle. Another secret. I find myself wondering about Shumo these days. Does she have my mother's voice or her laugh? It's almost worth going to the capital just to find out. More crows drift by, joining the circle above me. I wave my arms and try to shoot them away. To this, the crows freeze in place, then swing down to the river. I know these dark birds well. They're going to the banks to search for carry-on. Once our morning prayers end, they will soar back up to the camp and pick at the offerings scattered here and there. This is their casual freedom. For two-legged animals like us, so fixed to the ground, no path is so easy. Is this why we still wait for a religious teacher to come? I hear Tanky in the field behind me, 
somewhere along the newest row of grass huts. She's reciting the English alphabet, and although I don't know the letters myself, I can tell that she sounds clear and confident. Like a bell, her voice rises with each utterance above the rhythmic hammerings of the quarry workers. Nowadays, we have two outdoor classes for the children, one for Tibetan, taught by Yen Lopso, and one for English, taught by Teacher Mark and the camp's newest resident, Teacher Amy, a pale woman with hair like a field of barley. Most days, I overhear bits and pieces of their lessons as I work. Once, I spent an entire afternoon watching the men carry broad, thin sheets of wood from town. They propped sheets against boulders and painted them, layer after layer, with a coat of black so deep and pure it looked like a portal to the night. The next day, the teachers took small pellets of white powder and scratched English symbols onto the sheets, still moving on the boulders. Teacher Mark now responds to my sister in English. The only word I can make out is good, which she repeats. My little sister must be bright. In the start of classes, she has brought as much focus and determination to her lessons as the adults do to digging latrines, building huts, and planting grains on our infertile patch of land. My older girl, Ashalabet often says, for we are his children now. Tries very hard, but Tanky is a smart one. She's got her mother's mind. What kind of mind did I get? I once asked. He squinted for a moment, then let out a big laugh. I couldn't help but copy him and chuckle along. We had not laughed together, just the two of us, before that moment, and I felt as though we shared something important. After that moment passed and we were quiet again, I waited to see if he would answer my question. He didn't. Ashan carried on digging a ditch, and I was left to gather the crops. All right. Well, my first question is, who are you? Well, my name is Theron, and... Um, I, I was born in Nepal and um, came to Canada around, well, just before my 12th birthday. It's interesting because I grew up reading a lot in Nepal, which is, which is a, it's a huge privilege um, because unlike in Canada, books are not readily available. Um, you know, there, there weren't a ton of libraries except for my school library. Um, and so I, and even, you know, I went to quite a good school, so I had access to good, good books, but I never uh, imagined myself becoming a writer, especially because I uh, came to English late and yeah, it took me a long time before I pursued writing. So I guess that's who I am, somebody who came to writing <laughs> later and also came to Canada uh, in my teens, early teens. Your novel is just, it's so impressive for many reasons, but I'm always just in awe of these books that can, you know, that have such scale and scope. Your book moves through time and place. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this book started? So I started writing the novel when I was uh, in uh, the MFA program at Columbia. I had, it was my second semester and I had I had written a short story called The Greatest Tibetan Ever Born, which which did eventually get published in a late night. I can't remember which one, but um and that story was probably the most um I guess the most free I had been to write about Tibetan lives. Uh, you know, initially when I first started writing short stories was 
in the high school creative writing class um, in the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. And the class was something I just took out a whim because I was on my way to UBC to, you know, do something practical. And in that class, the, you know, we were supposed to write short stories. And I remember very clearly the first short story I wrote was about like Chinese concubines. Like I had, it had nothing to do with my life, but it was as close as I could get to some, I think before that I had written some short stories about white people, honestly. And then I wrote a short story at UBC. I enrolled in a creative writing class. Also just for fun, I told myself. And I wrote this, this short story about a Nepali girl, which, um, which obviously is closer to my life and my understanding. I think I grew up in Nepal. And then finally, I sort of gained the courage to write about Tibetan characters. And again, it was, you know, years later when I was in the MFA program, when I just really entered into the voices of contemporary Tibetan people as I knew them. And I felt it was, it was a really exciting time for me. And I, after I wrote that short story and I felt, you know, pretty decent about it, I, I felt like I was ready for something bigger, a bigger project. And one of my mentors actually explicitly told me, you know, you should write, you should start a novel. Because it's like in, in the MFA, I feel like it's quite traditional to write short story collections because everybody's working in that short form. But, you know, there were a few of us who were attempting to do a novel during the MFA. So that's really when I began it. I did not know what it would look like or where it would take me at the time. I had, I think I, it took me many years before I understood the sort of what I was really trying to do or where this, this would inevitably lead me was something, you know, on a scale that was about modern Tibetan history and about um, exile and uh, about, you know, magic and, and many other things. Uh, it just kept ballooning and kept demanding more and more stuff go, go in. And, and I felt more and more intrigued by what I was, uh, what I was willing to look at. And just my curiosity led me to kind of, build something much bigger than I perhaps would have if I had, you know, planned it in advance. But, um, yeah, so the, it was really the MFA. I just, when I started, just the idea that even the, the sort of the, the, the willingness to say, I'm going to write a novel and it's going to be about Tibetan people. That's when it began. In your reading, you introduce us to some of the just such compelling characters at the center of your book. Can you talk a little bit more and introduce us a bit more to the characters that really drive this book forward? Sure. Um, the There are two sisters, Lamo and Tenki. Um, Lamo is the older sister. She's about 12. Tenki's about uh, like two, three years younger. And uh, they flee Tibet with their family, with their parents. Um, and uncle um, during the sort of the annexation, the invasion of, of Tibet by um, the People's Liberation Army. Um, and what's important there is that their mother was a village oracle. So she um, essentially acted as a medium and a vessel for local gods to speak through her, to heal the people of her community, and to give them guidance. And this is a very ancient practice in Tibet. 
and one in which women have had for centuries a key role, especially in the villages away from the centers of power. And um, and it's interesting because I always grew up around these forms of um, sort of everyday magic in Tibetan culture, um, but I, I didn't sort of understand the scale and the, the depth of it um, in terms of Tibetan women um, until I started writing this book and I was doing research into it. So she's the sort of the center of the book, although she's dead before the book even begins, really. You know, Tamo is recalling the beginning from the refugee camp and her mother, the oracle, who leads her entire village into exile, just in the same way that the nature oracle, the state oracle of Tibet, led the Dalai Lama into exile. She is her, she leads her community into exile, but she dies at the border. But her spirit and her influence sort of reigns over the entire book, and she's this, this, this figure that is everywhere. And then there's uh, Samfel, who is a young boy when the book begins as well, and he's also coming to exile, and he's an orphan as well. And uh, he meets Samo and Tanki at the refugee camp in Nepal. And then there's Doma, who is the daughter of Samo and Samfel, um, when they reunite years later. So the book has all four perspectives and also two timelines, one in the past, beginning the 60s, and one in present day, which is 2011, I believe. And so in the book, we kind of go back and forth between the two timelines, but also across the four characters. I heard you uh, talk about um, that it took you years to kind of land on the structure as it is in the in the book. Uh, can you talk about that process and, and why this structure was the one that kind of resonated and felt right for this novel? Sure, yeah. So the, the structure of the novel is uh, essentially, um, there are four sections. The first is uh, daughters, the second one is sisters, the third is lovers, and the last one is self. And in daughters, sisters, lovers, we hear from two characters. So really the book is around this idea, is, is organized around this idea of relationships or our, our identities being relational as opposed to inert and um, something inherent and uh, solitary, but rather how we relate to one another or the roles we play in each other's lives. And I think to me, that was and, and continues to be a, a very Tibetan perspective of identity, that identity is something that is expressed, fashioned, understood, developed, and honored and seen through relationships. Um, and in, especially for people that have nothing, some refugees, you know, they leave with you know, their yaks and whatever they can carry on their back and they walk over the Himalayas and then they're in a foreign land and they have to start over lit literally with that, that nothing. So what they have is, is each other and what they have is their relationship. And through that, they are able to um, build a new future and try to survive. And many of the children that come into exile become orphans. Most of the characters that I'm writing about in this book are orphaned in one way or another and have to rebuild family and rebuild kinship. Um, so that was something that was really important to me and the, the structure of the book. And it also allowed me to have these two parallel timelines in which there can be huge gaps in time between 
you know, 1960s and 2011. But that also feels um, very accurate to how time functions, especially for people that are dealing with trauma that is continual, that isn't just a one-time thing. The structure had to be something that could hold a vast story of a family that's fractured, but also allow for massive gaps, which is what it feels like to be in a state of fracture and to be um, disconnected and torn away from each other, but also from a past that is, is, is um, lost in many ways. Things that you cannot recover, memories that you cannot recover, experiences that you cannot know about each other because of the nature of exile. I wanted to ask about writing about home. Um, home is something I know that so many authors wrestle with in their writing. Um, I've talked to many folks about this um, because it it is such a complicated thing to write about, especially for those who have been distanced um, either by exile or uh, as the indigenous people in Canada were forced from their land. You know, how do we write about home when it when there is that fracture, as you just mentioned? Um, I wondered if you could talk about that for you, uh, being, you know, writing about exile and writing about home and belonging. Um, well, I, I, you know, I think the idea of home can be, um, when I hear a question about home, I often feel like I have almost nothing to say because it is such a difficult and almost an abstract, an abstraction um, uh, as opposed to what I grew up around, which was an understanding of the immense beauty of Tibet. That, you know, this was a very clear thing that I remember, is that we all understood just the mythic beauty of this country that we came from. And also the fact that it had, that we, we lost it, but it's not ours anymore. But, but still there was this understanding, especially for people that, you know, take this title of being exiled. Exile inherently has the promise of return. It's very different from being just just a refugee, which is obviously also part of the experience of Tibetan people. But exile has this promise, um, and uh, which is also, in in, in a sense, uh, very painful as well. But there's also something quite hopeful inherent within the way in which Tibetan people have um, kind of written that narrative for ourselves but when I write about when I wrote this novel when I was writing about this novel I wasn't thinking too much about the abstraction of home or the, the, the sort of the concept of home I was thinking about the way in which people take care of each other um, that I have seen in the absence of home and that's in a sense this is why the book had to be very much grounded in the everyday and also had to be very much grounded in the physicality of what life feels like, what it, you know, what it, just holding each other and knowing that your bones belong to, you know, or resemble your parents, the physicality of the, the geography, the being located in, in this small refugee camp that's a sliver of land and what it looks like, what it feels like, what it sounds like. So everything has to be just the opposite of abstraction because it's, as much as possible rooted in the everyday and the, the sort of the reality of, of existence 
And I think that's actually, I think the way in which fiction is, is quite powerful or, and when it works, I think it works when, when that sort of immediacy of the place you're in, the, what it feels like to be in your body, what it feels like to, to, to think, to feel, um, to, to dream, all of these really human experiences come through, yeah, the everyday. And not so much the abstract ideas, I suppose. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm always so grateful for books like yours because, I mean, this is a history that I didn't know about. Of course, I, I grew up, you know, as a student at UVic and I saw Tibetan prayer flags and I remember like the free Tibet movements, but I didn't really ever connect that to the history that, you know, starts your story. And you know, I think a lot of what we understand in Western culture is, uh, you know, a, a construction of fantasy. But this book, you know, kind of stands against that. It, it's a deeply human story. It, it puts people at the center. Why was that so important for you to do? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I think I, I hadn't personally read or come across depictions of Tibetans in, in the way that I wanted to see. And um, so I was writing this, in a sense, to, to make real what I thought was missing. And like you said, uh, the abstractions, the fantasy, the, um, the projections, um, all of these things, um, even when they seem flattering, can be dehumanizing because they can take away you know, if there's this idea that Tibetans are just like really happy, peaceful Buddhists who don't, who are just here to like teach everybody how to be compassionate. But it's like, do people understand uh, the losses that Tibetans have endured or how how much uh, the practice of nonviolence and compassion toward even our oppressors is a daily and deliberate thing that Tibetans engage in, not something natural or inherent just by being Tibetan. <laughs> and so I think to to enter into that, to enter into and to immerse myself and others into what it means to be alive today uh, for these characters who are Tibetan, you know, it's it's something that has to, as I said earlier, it has to be fleshed out in a way that fiction can do. Um, you have to enter these people's bodies. You have to see themselves, their sort of dreams and their hopes, and then also their crushing disappointments, but also their strength um, and their wisdom. Um, and all of these things cannot be done from the outside. It, it requires us to enter, enter their consciousness and enter their bodies um, and enter their stories. And, you know, that's what I've always loved about fiction, as opposed to, I guess, like, nonfiction. There are actually a lot of uh, Tibetan memoirs and um, you know, biographies. Um, and that's understandable because a lot of Tibetan, you know, former political prisoners and so forth have written stories about what they've endured and, you know, what they believe in and who they are and things like that. But for me, it was also about entering something that I haven't experienced because I wasn't born in the 50s. I don't know what that generation endured exactly either. And so the book was a way for me to both do research, but also the imaginative act of writing a novel enter into that experience to fully comprehend, you know, my elders, 
my family, my community, and also myself um, in that way. So, you know, I think primarily if a novelist or novelist is working to do something for themselves, it can be a lot easier than if they take on that mantle of trying to enlighten the rest of the world. Yeah. I, I saw you in a an event with uh, Janice Lynn Mather, and I, I think it was just shortly after your book had come out, and you you kind of expressed how you were in you were a bit surprised that you you had even gotten there, and that the book and I, as a writer myself, I deal with doubt uh, constantly. How do you deal with doubt as a writer, and the you know how do you come back to the page? especially when you're dealing with a book like the like this amazing novel your debut novel um doubt is like a very a very constant thing in my life and I would imagine you know a lot of writers experiences a lot of artists I think um because uh, there is no there is no roadmap and there's no there's no real um it's not like getting a degree and you're like, okay, I know how to do this. You know, like I know how to do brain surgery that a doctor <laughs> can say. Um, even if you have studied the craft, you might not be able to do it. You might not be able to write a novel. And I actually didn't know if I could do it. And the only way you know you can do it is actually to do it. And it, it's very much, it's, it's very much, uh, uh, you know, just the water we, we swim in is, is doubt. But I think the other side of it is, you know, the the doubt can overpower when we don't really sort of trust and follow the sense of our curiosity, the things that are sparking something, you know, like really alive, making us alive, like feel alive, um, whatever that is. If, if we cannot allow ourselves to trust that. And we allow the doubt to overpower, you know, the, the curiosity or the joy of pursuing an idea or some characters or some, just an image, even an image could be enough to lead you through something uh, until you have at least a draft, you know? So I think, I think that's the constant, you know, I, I'm, I'm there right now too, you know, like I'm working on the next thing and I'm back in the doubt, but I'm also... Now I know that actually it is possible to finish a book, but I also know that I have to trust myself and I have to trust the things that I feel are interesting to me because at the very least I did that last time and some people found it interesting. So I, you know what I'm saying? And so and it's not going to be everybody. And that's the case for all writers. So we kind of have to like trust that there are other people, like at least one other person who will be intrigued by the same thing that you are. Yeah. Um, what's inspiring the writing you're doing these days? Wow. Okay. That's really, it's almost really hard for me to describe because it sounds what I'm what I'm inspired by right now is 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 very very hard for me to describe or even um, understand. I think this is a, the other part of it. So the, the thing that's like sparks your curiosity is often also going to be, I find, completely mysterious. 
that you don't understand it. And, um, you know, some writers think that actually speaking about it can be quite, you know, quite dangerous. <laughs> um, and, I, and I think that's kind of true, actually, because when I have tried to articulate it, I just like look at people's faces and I'm just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, <clears throat> I, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this idea for like two years and I've been researching for two years. So I know I can't shake it off. But it's, it's, it's very out there. I will say that it's feminist. It's about magic still, but it's about the earth. It's about something very old. That was Saring Lama. Saring's novel, We Measure the Earth with Our Bodies, was a finalist for the 2023 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize and the 2023 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast. <laughs>